0: Hey there, I'm Betsy, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. In today's episode, I'm joined by Jill and Dave Henry, authors of The Greatest College Health Guide You Never Knew You Needed. Not only are they published authors, they are parents and high school athletic coaches. In researching their book, Jill and Dave talked to hundreds of students as they developed this amazing how-to manual about how to manage food, booze, stress, sex, Sleep and exercise on campus. During our conversation, Dave and Jill explain why students struggle so much after high school and how parents can best support their children during the college years. They also share valuable tips for parents when talking to teens about alcohol and why it's so important that our kids know their limits. Some of the topics that we discuss might make some listeners uncomfortable. But I truly believe that it is important that we have these conversations with our teens now to prepare them for what lies ahead. Now let's get started. Hi, Jill and Dave. Thanks so much for being here today on the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. Thank you for having us. We're we're excited to be here. So this is a topic that I personally am ready for as I get ready to send my oldest off to college. But I think there's a lot of information in your book that's going to be super helpful and we're going to talk through a lot of that. But before we do, can you just take a minute and introduce yourselves to my audience?
1: Of course. So my name is Jill Henry. I spent 10 years teaching high school statistics um, and stepped away when my son was born. So I've been out of the classroom full time for about the last four years But in the fall, we'll be starting my 15th year coaching high school girls cross country. Um, So my whole professional life has been spent working with high schoolers, primarily seniors. That's really the age group that I taught when I was in the classroom.
2: And my name is Dave Henry. I am Jill's husband. I'm an editor and producer in TV and film. And we actually met coaching high school sports. That was one of the first things that we really bonded over was I was coaching high school football at the same high school where she was coaching cross country. It kind of had its own rom com story of the whole school (laughs) conspiring to get us together. And it worked. But like I said, that was one of the first things we really connected on was was being there and being of service to people of this age range.
1: Yeah,
0: and don't you love this age range?
1: The best, the best. Yeah. I've and, you know as a coach, I've thought about working with different ages, typically older. Uh, but there's something so sweet about high schoolers, and they're just so curious and excited to keep growing and learning. And that has always been what's been fun about that job for both of us.
0: I've never been a teacher, nor have I been a high school coach, but I would think as a coach, you have more of an ability to develop a deeper relationship and mentor them and get to know them more personally. Not that teachers can't, um, but they don't have as much time with them one-on-one, right? It's it's 100%.
1: You're, you're so spot on because in cross country in particular... I coached these girls for 4 years. I coach all levels of runners, so JV and varsity are on the same group or the same team. So I do develop a great relationship with them over that time and get to know them in a different way because I've had both experiences. So in the classroom, you're sort of singularly focused on the topic at hand. Particularly with a sport like running where there's a lot of downtime where we're on trails, you get into conversations and I'm with these kids for 6 months. So by the time they graduate high school, there's a part of me that feels like I'm losing you know, kids that I've kind of seen grow up. And um, I'm fortunate that I've kept in touch with tons of them because that's the type of relationship you build when you're with them for so long. So, you know, those kids in my program are particularly special to me for the exact reason you mentioned. The relationship is is different. It's unique. Um, and it's very near and dear to my heart.
2: And I was an off campus coach. So I kind of had this additional layer that was advantageous, which was, I was not there for your physics class earlier today, Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. I wasn't, you know, with you and your parents when they were mad at you for getting up late, I'm only here for you right now. And so you can, you tend to be able to cut through some of the posturing or some of the, um, I feel like I need to act a certain way because I'm a student and you're a coach and you can kind of get right down to it.
0: It's definitely a different dynamic. So you've seen a lot of kids as you've coached them over the years, you've seen them move on to wherever they're going after high school. And and I'm just going to say college for today, because that's what we're talking about, but it might be a job or trade school or the military or some, a gap year, wherever it might be. So why do you think so many students struggle to adjust mm-hmm. to life after high school, whether it be college life or something else?
1: That's a, a great big question. First off, I think the most important thing for everybody listening to here is the message that students so often get is the simple, distilled, this is gonna be the best four years of your life. You've done the application, you know where you're going, like the hard part's over. What we've really tried to do with this book and every time we talk to students is reframe that to be very honest about the fact that it's going to be hard. Of course it is. You know, I've been talking about it recently is it's the infancy of your independence where all the decisions that impact how you feel and how you navigate life are really on you for the first time. And so understanding and honestly communicating to kids that the challenges, that there are many challenges still to come. I think it's important for them to understand that when it's hard, it's not anything they did. It's the circumstances of the transition. So to distill what those big issues are, um, I really think we've kind of knocked it down to like three major things.
2: Yeah, it's funny when we speak to students who are heading off to school, the number one thing that they're most excited about is the freedom. I cannot wait to be on my own and to be able to make these decisions for myself. I've been waiting for years for this moment. And then when we speak to juniors and seniors who are in college, they say the hardest thing for them to navigate was the freedom. And when you go from having most of your life completely structured, it's out of your control when you get up or when you have to be at school or if you're going to go to practice afterwards or what your extracurriculars are or your parent telling you, you need to go to bed. It's two o'clock in the morning. What are you doing awake right now? Those structures are in place for better or worse, and you don't have any control over them. And so when you show up on campus and all of those structures are gone and you happen to have more free time than you've ever had before, but you also have just as much, if not more, to be responsible for, uh, that's a really difficult transition that most students have had zero experience in or have even thought about, well, how am I going to handle this? You know, for me personally, because not everything is going to work. There's no one size fits all template for this. So discovering what will work for them and how they're going to manage their time and take care of what they need to take care of is extremely important. And another really difficult challenge is that there can be a big shift in identity when you show up on a college campus, because up until you're 18, you've been known as the piano player, or the football player, or the person who's really good in student government, you've got a whole community of people that know you as a specific thing. And when you show up at a college where you don't know anybody, all of that, uh, not just the way that the world sees you, but the way that you see yourself has changed. And so it's not just about the way that the world treats me because they know me and they, uh, you know, I don't have to prove myself. But especially if you've had some things that you really cared about, like high school sports, for instance, and you're no longer doing those things in college, what are you going to do for yourself in terms of how you spend your time, how you uh, identify the things that are important to you? And if you haven't spent any time thinking about that, well, what are my hobbies? Because I've been so programmed and busy from the time that I was 12 until 18. Now you have this time and we'll It's easy to say the stereotype of, well, now I'm just stuck in my room scrolling through my phone, but that's not a a happy place to end up for a lot of people. And that's such a stark difference from what they're coming from in high school, that those changes can be really challenging.
1: And, And the last thing is that's worth giving some airtime to is just biologically, that's a tough age. Um, 18 to 22 is captured in the average age of onset for a lot of different mental health concerns. And so generalized anxiety disorder, first depressive episode, um, disordered eating, alcohol abuse disorder, all of those can emerge within that timeframe, which has, you know, doesn't, is not necessarily correlated with them being in college. It's just that the way that your body's changing hormonally, chemically, um, that can open the door for some bigger challenges. And add to that what also makes it challenging is your your day-to-day support system has changed. So you're surrounded by a bunch of other kids who are going through the same things and still trying to figure out how to manage life and time and wellness rather than adults, your teachers, your coaches, your parents who, you know, might have their own challenges but they are have, have practiced taking care of themselves and can check in on you in a different way. Um, so those, I guess that's really big, four big major things that make that transition really challenging. And we always say when we talk to students about it, it's not to scare you, it's to prepare you so that when these things happen, you're not intimidated, but you are expecting it. And, um, and so that's, that's really every time we talk about it, how we try to frame it.
0: Okay. What the two of you just said in like the past, I don't know, minute and a half or whatever that was sums it up so perfectly. Like that's going to be my soundbite from this episode because all of that, and it's things you don't really think of, right? Like how, how their support, I mean, you know that their support system changes, but, but their identity, like all of this is so insightful. And I mean, gosh, mental health, I've talked on this podcast with others and other episodes about that, about this time, this young adulthood time where things start to present them, you know, mental health issues start to present. Um, So I'm, I'm aware of that, but we've seen, you know, both of you are coaches. So this is a great time to talk about this. We've seen in the news recently, I mean, for a long time now, but I, I just last week was reading about three young female athletes who took their own lives, college athletes and, who, according to like everyone in their lives, seemingly they seemed fine, like no, no issues, no symptoms, nothing no that worried or concerned anybody. So I'm not even sure what my question is here, but how do you maybe identify that or you know, talk to your college student or any young adult to get them to open up about it?
2: Yeah, it's uh, first and foremost... This is a complex issue and mental health struggles, they strike individuals differently, they arrive at different times, and it would be a disservice to everyone if we could just try to surmise this and say that there's a simple solution that if we only did blank, everybody would be fine. Um it's obviously, as you mentioned, been in the news a lot with, with Katie Mayer in Stanford, Sarah Schultz in Wisconsin, Laura Bennett, James Madison. Just in the last 60 days, we've seen high-achieving athletes die by suicide. And unfortunately, this is not just relegated to the last couple months. This is something that happens every year. Specific to student athletes, the pressure that they feel and that they put on themselves is such a complex situation because you've got a grueling schedule that is demanding your time and is relentless, and is year round. And you have to balance academics on top of that. And so you're in a situation where, especially for a lot of these high achieving athletes, your entire identity can be summed up in how you perform in a short period of time during a game on one day. And so that idea of constantly being in performance mode, um, not just the pressure of performing well, but the personal judgment, if, if you're not perfect, uh, can be such a challenging situation to, to deal with on a regular basis. We were speaking to a freshman um, at UPenn the other day who brought up a really important point, which is that there are resources for people in crisis. If you, if you have a breaking point and you're in a mental health crisis, there are numbers to call. There are people you can speak to there are resources available for you. But so frequently what happens is that for sometimes years, people are struggling and white knuckling through maybe not a breaking point in their mental health, but constant chronic stress that they're um, trying to push through. And so what are we going to do to provide resources for not just when you're in a nine or 10 on a stress scale, But when you're constantly in a five and a six and a seven um, and a a softball player at University of Wisconsin had a wonderful social media post where she opened up about her own personal struggles in light of what's happened in the last 60 days and uh, mentioned what she's been going through. And there's an ongoing effort to try and reduce the stigma around mental health issues um, but one of the things that w- we've talked a lot about this and tried to figure out, you know, w- what is it that can be done? Are there things that will be advantageous and normalizing mental health check ins, both on a personal and an organizational level? So it's not just about reducing the stigma so that if you have a problem, you feel comfortable coming forward and and utilizing the courage that it would take to do that. But normalizing that this is something that every two weeks you can check in with your team or your class. And every week on an individual level, you can be asking yourself, how am I doing? Um, And that level of personal assessment, how am I doing, is something that, again, when you remove the familiar structures of parents and teachers and coaches and friends that you've known for years – who could spot something that looks maybe off. How are you are you okay? You look a little off. You know, because you lose those kind of things, all of that advocating for yourself falls on your shoulders. And if we can try and encourage young people that regularly checking in with how do I feel and then analyzing the time that you've been spending, what have you been doing in your week so that you can maybe course correct, or at bare minimum note that you're seeing a progression that's not helpful for you is something that we try and encourage, not just, you know, parents and students that we talk to, but for everybody, you know, stress doesn't go away as you age. And so if you have the ability to constantly be checking in with yourself and working towards how am I going to uh, alleviate some of these things that are weighing me down, That at least feels like a step in the right direction. And there's some great organizations, especially for student-athletes. Yeah,
1: there are two big organizations that have really come to the forefront in the last bit. Um, One's called Morgan's Message and the other is called The Hidden Opponent, both to try to support student-athlete mental health. And the two things that they both stand for are education and conversation. And so Morgan's message, for instance, is trying to bring more education to teams by getting coaches and players to buy in and not just talk about mental health, but educate students about what are the warning signs and what can you do, like Dave said, to course correct or how do you check in with yourself? And the other thing is giving students a platform to share their experience, which is something we did in the book with all of our topics, but it's really powerful when students are vulnerable and talking about their own mental health. So Morgan's Message has student athletes write about their experience, and they also have a podcast where they'll share about their experience. Just listening to the account of other students can help individual athletes, student athletes, or just kids in college in general, feel less alone when they realize, oh, my feelings are feelings that other people are having. I'm not alone in this. For all the reasons we stated before, it's a really difficult time, and student athletes face unique additional pressures. and so. In any circumstance, in high school, you know, with my team, every single week, we do physical and mental health check-ins. I have a place where they can write down on cards and tell me, I, I simply phrase it as, is there anything else you want me to know? And sometimes I approach them about it individually, and sometimes it's just a place for them to express how they're feeling. But those are structured into our weekly training and I think coaches have a wonderful opportunity here to add education to their programming that could be transformative. Um, and, you know, forget about the the performative success of their team can help those individual people learn how to better take care of themselves that will last long after they graduate um, college and and end their athletic experience. So education and, and communication, I think, seem to be two big pillars
0: of uh, part of the solution here. I love that approach. And you're right. I mean, it works for athletes, obviously, but I mean, the pressures kids are under, whether it's, you know, AP courses or any kind of competition they're in or, you know, musicians, whoever they are trying to perfect their craft, um, are, they're all under these these really stressful times. And I, I wish there was more activity within schools. Like what you're talking about, you know, more check in, more giving them the tools and the strategies to check in with themselves, because I don't think they know how to do that. Right, and uh, like your teams are really lucky that they have you to teach them that, and as a resource to bounce off of. So that's amazing. We could talk about this for an entire episode, <laughs> and maybe we will, because this is a really important topic. So we might have to do this again and come back to that. Welcome
1: to the Wellness Driven Life Show, your gateway to a new dimension of wellness. Featuring discussions with world renowned experts, pioneers, champions, and professionals. Experience high-end production, sophistication, and easily applicable tips and tricks for everyday life. Your journey to wellness, it starts here and it starts now. Tune in to the Wellness-Driven Life Show and
0: become a part of the evolution of Driven Living. I want to talk more about the book, which, by the way, listeners, the book is called The Greatest College Health Guide You Never Knew You Needed, 101 Tips from Students to Totally Crush College. And This includes how to manage food, booze, stress, sex, sleep, and exercise on campus, which they all need it. You know, somebody said to me a while ago, they're like, if you think your kid's not doing it, they're doing it. They're all doing it. Um, So we can bury our heads in the sand or we can say, "Okay, let's equip our kids to be ready for it. So let's talk a little bit about that. How do you help teens prepare on any of or all of these things before they head off to college? So I think that there is a good summer
1: to-do list um, that students should do and parents can encourage their kids to do. Use us as a scapegoat. Be like, I heard these two people talking about it on a podcast. Um, You know, maybe we should try these things. And so one of them I would say is, first is a conversation. Um, Have a conversation with your child about financial clarity. So finances are the number two stressor in college after academics. And so I think getting on the same page about who's going to pay for what, How is it going to be paid for? How will students earn money when they're on campus? Um, It's not necessarily something that affects everybody, but it should be a conversation you have so that parents, you don't feel like your your emergency credit card is being taken advantage of. And students, so that you feel like you understand um, what the expectations are around money when you're no longer in the same household. So that's one thing that you can have a conversation about before leaving. The second thing I would say is two things you want to do research on. The first is have your child research some clubs. Um, If they have any trepidation about how they're going to make friends in this new environment, which when we talk to students tends to be one of the biggest concerns they have is how do I replace all of my friends that I've grown up with? What's cool about college is everything is segmented into these common interest groups. You have intramural sports and you have clubs for literally everything under the sun. Find something you're interested in or think you'd be interested in. And go and going can sometimes be really intimidating, but it's just like rip off the band aid. Nobody's comfortable doing it. And, you know, so for parents, remind your kid like meeting new people is always really uncomfortable, regardless of your age. Just try and go and show up. You only have to stay five minutes, and chances are you'll stay longer. So I would say research clubs. And then the second thing I was going to say to research, I'll pass to Dave.
2: Yeah, I I think it's really important that you talk to your children about alcohol before they go off to college if you haven't already started that conversation. And just as a quick tip for this, because it's potentially an easier situation, do it in front of their friends. Because a lot of times that, especially as coaches, we see students act a certain way when we're around. And then we see the way that they interact with their parents and we're like, oh, my God, that's a different person right there. <laughs> and, and that's, you know, I know we've got it coming. We've got two young kids who will be teenagers at some point in time, and I know we got it coming. But um, so typically the interactions between parents and students can be so charged around sensitive topics that if you can somehow make it less about me, the parent is telling you, the child, what you need to do and more about the two of us are standing over here and we're both looking at something together. And if you can include some other people in that conversation, sometimes that can help ease. And even if your child is like, mom, what are you talking about? You know uh, (laughs) you might notice that the other kid is like, Oh, I'm glad you brought this up. You know, this is something that I'd like to talk about, but the most dangerous time of year, the most dangerous time in all of college is the first semester, first few weeks of freshman year. And that's because there's so many students who are really excited to be there, and many of them have zero experience with alcohol, and now they have access to it in a way that they never had before. And so the conversation around alcohol should be structured around finding your limit for your body type, your gender, your weight. You can discover What is the limit of alcohol that you can have in your system before you become very sick? And the more you drink after that, the consequences get much worse. We don't, uh, again, as Jill said, it's not to scare, it's to prepare. You can die from drinking too much alcohol. And not enough college students know that. Since 1969, there's been uh, a, a fraternity or sorority incident where somebody has died by drinking too much alcohol every single year and that's because they just don't know any better they don't know that if i chug this bottle of vodka i'm chugging poison there's a reason it's called alcohol poisoning right and a number that many people are familiar with 0.08 is the blood alcohol content where if you are above a 0.08 it is no longer legal for you to, to operate a motor vehicle and that's kind of where everybody's uh general knowledge of alcohol stops um, and some important numbers that I think are worth recognizing is that at 0.12, all of the positive effects of alcohol, the excitement, the lowered inhibitions, the euphoria, the things that physical sensations you actually feel all start to disappear and turn for the worst very quickly. So euphoria turns into dysphoria, disease, anxiousness. You get past 0.15, you start vomiting. You get past point two zero, you start blacking out, which means you're still functioning, but you will have no memory of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you get up into point three and point four, you can stop breathing and die. And 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 that's something that again, in the conversation that so many high schools have around alcohol, which is do not drink until you're 21, in that abstinence-based conversation, we're not giving our children a, a chance to, to learn about what can happen if I overdo this. And so the sooner you can, even if this conversation takes you four different nights where you just planted the seed once and you're like, okay, that was good enough for now. Let me revisit this again. Make sure your child understands how to find their limit. And if they want to take it a step further, set some expectations for I'm only going to party twice a week or I'm going to set some kind of intention for when I go out, I'm only going to have so many drinks Or per week, I'm only going to socialize so much. But those two components of finding your limit and setting intentions about your relationship to alcohol, I think are really important conversations that every household should be having.
1: And one thing I would add to that is when we have talked to groups of students, They're most interested in the alcohol conversation when it's with us. So I understand that that's, you know, different circumstances, but they also are least knowledgeable about the alcohol situation. When we talk about nutrition, they're like, yeah, I I generally know what I should be eating. But alcohol is one where they know 0.08 and they don't, they don't even necessarily know what that, what that correlates to in terms of drinks. They know the number, but they don't understand. I could get to a 0.08 with one drink. Um, and so it's just trying to contextualize it and make sense of it for them so that it's it's actionable and practical. So you're like going off, you know, you can only have two drinks before you're going to start feeling not so good. And so that's just one thing to know is that you might assume they know more than they do. They might have practiced it, but they might not have practiced drinking with the knowledge base that's necessary to stay safe.
0: My husband and I have started doing just that over the past couple of months because it's true. The reality is it's going to happen whether we like it or not. I mean, some people might think it won't, but they can live in that world. But yeah, I'd rather, I'd rather have those conversations and make sure that he has the information he needs than not. Right. Because if he doesn't, the consequences are – and the risk is just so right. much greater.
1: Well, and even if your child doesn't drink, knowing – what what it looks like when somebody is at risk of alcohol poisoning, knowing generally how many right. drinks it takes to get to that threshold, that could save somebody's life. So this is right. education. A quarter of college students don't drink. It doesn't matter. It's education every single one of them should have so that they can look out for one another because it is so many issues. Our alcohol chapter is fifty pages long, which is like nearly double the size of other chapters in the book. But that's because, Not only is alcohol in and of itself dangerous, but there's a lot of other dangerous situations that happen when alcohol is involved. So this is possibly the most important thing to educate kids about. And they get a bit of it in orientation, but don't assume they're getting enough. Orientation is very overwhelming. There's a lot of information being um, translated. And it also isn't necessarily, from our experience, talking to orientation leaders and students it's not necessarily delivered in the most impactful or effective way. It needs to be a longer conversation where there's some room to breathe and process. Um, And our our book in general, that chapter has been really well received because of the way that it it approaches these topics. So if you're a parent listening and you're not even sure how to start the conversation, that could be a good starting point is just reading it and figuring out what are the ways in because it's a, a pretty necessary part of education that's not really been done justice on either the high school or the college side.
2: And to emphasize just that point too, because I think it's an interesting angle into the conversation. Again, it's less about me, the parent telling you, the child, what you need to do. And it's more the two of us looking at the stages of intoxication. So if you see somebody who has bloodshot eyes and they're stumbling and they're slurring, let's look at the chart. What does their BAC say? Now it's important to be able to and identify those physical symptoms because that person could be very dangerous to, to you or to other people. And so it's not just about making sure that your child uh, has the understanding of how to not hurt themselves with alcohol, but the wherewithal, the spatial and social awareness to say, oh, well, maybe I'm going to get my friends out of this situation because A a few drunk guys showed up to this party, and they look like this could be bad. So maybe it's time for me to leave. It's not to say that that exact scenario will play out. But if you've talked about it, if they've thought about it, then the opportunity for them to course correct or make a different decision in the moment is going to be higher.
0: I think this book too is a great tool to get the conversation started. So maybe, you know, you read the chapter and then they read the chapter or vice versa. And then you just talk about it because a lot of what you guys are talking about today and a lot of what's in the book is even beyond my scope of knowledge, right? Like I know what drunk looks like, but yeah, I mean, as far as young people, they don't know where that tipping point is between, oh, he's had a couple versus, oh my gosh, we need to call 911 so um i I love that you provide so much data or facts in here, I guess I should say, that are helpful to navigate the conversation with your teen or young adult and for them to kind of be able to consume it on their own so speaking of parents, and we all have helicoptered at one time <laughs> or another, and you know, you and I were just talking about it before we started recording i'm I'm letting go I'm letting the the little birdie fly the coop this fall. What strategies do you have for people like me and other parents um, who want to still check in and be connected with their student, but, or their child, I should say, but allow them to maintain their independence.
2: Yeah. Well, I think an important thing to remember for parents as their, their children go off to school is that not only is this a ceremonial rite of passage for them, and that their reluctance to check in frequently or ask for help uh, may be something that they're stubborn and hardheaded about, that this is what they want to do and they're not interested in including you and in how they navigate these things. But institutionally, there there are some obstacles for parents. Uh, schools are not allowed to release academic information to parents for HIPAA reasons, schools are not allowed to release me- mental health or health information to parents. And so while you your hands are tied in a certain extent into in terms of what you can do, and probably for better, um, I can right. only imagine how many parents across the country would be showing up to argue with professors <laughs> about certain grades. or try I think to get it, it
0: happens a lot, I think. It does, because we've
1: talked to a lot of college administrators who say exactly that.
2: Uh, you know, what we can suggest for parents is to offer support. And with the caveat that if you reach out to me, I will do my best to reserve judgment. And I don't care what it is. I don't care what the outcome is. If you call me and you ask me for help, I will help you.
1: And I would jump in on that. We had a portion of our book. Um, we had a student anonymously write an account and we have a trigger warning in front of it because it, it deserves to be of their sexual assault on a college campus. And one of mm-hmm. the things that really stuck out to me when I read that is, you know, at the end of it, the writer was like, of all of this, one of the things that was most scary to me was having to tell my parents because I'd felt like I let them down or I did something wrong. And that's a very extreme case. But I think to circle back to what we said in the beginning, for parents to recognize and accept the fact that this is a really, really, challenging circumstance that kids are in, sort of like fraught with obstacles that are almost like comically designed for kids to fail. And so just allowing them the space to fail without judging them for that. Um, And like I said, the example that I just gave is very extreme. And the, the writer said, when I told my parents, I was so relieved to know that all they wanted to do was help me and be there for me and support me. And we've seen other things like that because our book is full of hundreds of quotes from students across the country. And so when they bring up parents, it's always in when I chose to reach out to them for help, they were supportive. I think often what you'll find as a parent is your kids will come to you um, when, when they're ready and when they need their help. Now that said, one thing that I think can start to be cultivated this summer is really legitimate conversations about how you're doing not just hey how's it going oh good you know the the sort of like early conversation you know phone call banter but starting the discussion about deeply analyzing how are you doing physically and how are you doing mentally and if you can start that while they're at home you can get them to start assessing themselves it's something that we talked about earlier where they're keying in on like man i've actually been feeling really stressed lately i've been having a lot of tension headaches I just feel really uh, like unfocused or overwhelmed. That if you can start the dialogue while they're still at home, that can become a part of your regular check-in on the phone. And but it won't happen if that you know that dialogue hasn't already started to be shaped, if that trust isn't built. And that's something as a parent. You can, yeah. I talk we talk to our kids about that stuff already. Um, like when I'm really stressed out, I'll explain to our four-year-old how I'm feeling and what that looks like and why I'm responding the way I'm responding. Maybe I'm being really impatient, et cetera, but communicating back to them that you have those same complicated feelings and just making that a part of a conversation. Um, You know, Like Dave was saying, unfortunately, as a parent, once they're off, the only way to learn independence is to let them be independent. But getting them to communicate with you about how they're feeling is a great way to make sure that they're paying attention to their cues best possible so that they can take action when necessary.
0: This is all so, so helpful, especially for parents with kids who are heading off somewhere new, whether it's college or somewhere else this fall. So the book again is The Greatest College Health Guide You Never Knew You Needed, How to Manage Food, Booze, Stress, Sex, Sleep, and Exercise on Campus by Jill and Dave Henry. I would love to have you guys back again because I feel like there are so many topics we didn't talk about that we still should and could. And in the meantime, though, I want people to be able to find you. They can obviously find your book, but where can they find you online, your website, your social, any of that? Our website
1: is Greatest College Health Guide, but what we're really excited about as of late is our social media for the book, which we didn't start until this year because we couldn't figure out the right way to do it. But um, we just recently started multiple takeovers throughout the week of current students discussing their transition to college and their wellness struggles and successes. And so, students from all over the country, of all different age ranges, um, you know, different different years in school, and that's it. Like they're just doing takeovers and then we're summarizing their takeover to give some lessons. And then this summer we're actually running a sort of a free college prep course on Instagram. So part of my background is curriculum development. Part of what we're trying to do with our book and our mission is to enhance the education around wellness, the outside of the classroom part of the college experience um, and so we're going to be running a summer school class this summer that's basically just like little tips but also little tiny little assignments to get kids slightly more prepared for the transition ahead. And then that's our greatest college health guide account if you want to see pictures of our two little kids and our dog uh, that's at two coach henrys to so get a glimpse into our life as married co-authors but um but that's where we are online.
0: Yeah, I love that Instagram that they you're doing takeovers with people because I it's true right? Once you get a glimpse inside other students and and what their life is like and what they're experiencing, I would think that would be in some ways reassuring and just, you know, confidence building for kids who might be worried or struggling as they prepare to move on to the next chapter. Totally. So I'm going to put all the links in the show notes so people can find them. Thank you both for being here. I, I really made it when I say I'd love to have you back again because I feel like there's so much we didn't talk about, but it's been, such a helpful conversation for me personally, and I know it will be for a lot of my listeners. So, thank you both so much for being here today. Our
1: pleasure. Thank you for having us. Thank you.
0: This conversation was super helpful to me personally, and I hope you feel the same way. Some of the topics we discussed might make some parents feel uncomfortable, but we can't bury our heads in the sand. As Jill and Dave said, we aren't trying to scare, we are trying to prepare. I'm planning to suggest that my son reads Jill and Dave's book, and I think I'll buy a few more copies for some other graduates I know. I think having a resource like this book will help my family better navigate these difficult but critically important conversations. Again, while this book is targeted at college students, I think there's a lot of valuable information for parents of teens and young adults, no matter what their chosen path. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I'm so grateful you took the time out to listen please share this podcast with someone who will find it helpful. Be sure and check out the show notes at highschoolhamsterwheel.com slash 119, where I will include all links mentioned during this episode. If you or a young person you know needs some career guidance, I can help. You can learn more about me and the coaching I offer at betsyjewelcoaching.com. That's it for today. I'll be back soon with another episode of the High School Hamster Wheel podcast.